0: On his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all those things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by by the saying, He went away sorrowfully, and for he had great possessions. Thank you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. Lord, we need you to teach us. Not only to pray, but teach us to trust. Teach teach us how to speak in a way that honors you. How to think in a way that is consistent with your word. How to love what you love and hate what you hate. Father, we need you. And we know that you have promised that you would not leave us as orphans, but you have deposited your spirit, the comforter in our hearts, to guide us and to teach us and to lead us to magnify Christ. We need your spirit this morning, we pray. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Initially, I had uh, hopes to do from 17 to 31, um, but realized as I had uh, got into the throes of it Uh, I was not able to do that. Um, Maybe I've been doing this for six years. Maybe in another six years I'll be able to pull it off. But rather than having an hour and a half sermon, um, and I thought I would boil it down and try to focus it on this week and next week, really the essence of this story that is often called uh, The Rich Young Ruler. With that being said, we, um, in 2003, Andrew Peterson released uh, an album called Love and Thunder. And in that Love and Thunder, uh, it has one of my favorite songs. And uh, it's called A Family Man. And some of you have heard it. We've played it actually at funerals and I believe Bill Zinn and uh, Richard Brimer. Uh, but it's a man that chronicles the transformation of a, uh, a boy who was young and footloose and fancy free to a mature father who enjoys the deep love of his family. And as this uh, Andrew Peterson looks back, he remembers um, that he would never uh, have imagined when he was a boy Uh, when he dreamed of fast cars and freedom, the blessings uh, that giving up that freedom would bring him. He writes these words. He says, I am a family man. I traded in my Mustang for a minivan. This is not what I was headed for when I began. This was not my plan. I'm a family man. But everything I had to lose came back a thousand times in you, and you filled me up with love, you filled me up with love, and you helped me stand, because I am a family man. When Peterson was 18 years old, if he were given the choice between freedom and a man's commitment, he would have chosen freedom every time. But he would have missed out on something that he would say was so much better this morning as we continue in the bo- book of mark we will see that jesus lays before us a choice the choice of following ourselves or as disney calls it following your heart or following jesus one is a choice to follow your heart to be able to experience what feels good and what our world says the ought be you the authentic you And the other choice is to follow Jesus by denying yourself, by denying yourself to receive what is infinitely more satisfying. It's a choice between the fleeting sweetness that this life and this world may offer and the eternal satisfaction that is in God alone that begins now and continues throughout all eternity. However, when we put this before, it's not an easy choice. It's a choice that we have to battle every day to uh, die to self and follow Jesus. And in fact, as we will see next week, It's quite honestly, as Jesus tells us, it's an impossible choice. We need the grace of God to follow Jesus, to find a treasure that is more valuable than anything our heart could absolutely uh, find on its own. If you're not already there, turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Uh, it's on page 846 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Pew Bible, uh, you have your own copy at home. Go to the table of context, which is in the first pape, uh, couple pages. It'll have all the books of the Bible list out. The book of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark. Find that page number, flip to it, and we're in chapter 10. But just to be able to catch you up, if you haven't been following with us or just you don't remember uh, what happened last week, Jesus is teaching us about the radical nature of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and to follow Jesus. And this kingdom, as we have been seeing unfolded in these weeks before, is an upside-down kingdom where Christ reigns, And citizens deny themselves, and rather being served in this kingdom, they reach out and they serve the humble and the weak, not the prideful and the powerful like we do in our worlds. This kingdom of heaven is a radical, self-denying, sin-killing, Christ-obeying kingdom that requires every aspect of your life, to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and to trust Him as a child. And that's the problem. We don't like to be powerless, to be weak, or to be humble. We don't like to be like a child. All of my life, or not my life, well, my life too, Uh, I have watched my children's life from when they were wee laddies and lassies, when they have grown up, it has been a process of becoming less dependent on Denise and I and becoming more independent and self-dependent to be able to be productive members of the society. But it's against the grain, the kingdom of God, that says if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to become like a child, to be more and more dependent on Jesus and less dependent on ourselves. Because if we depend on ourselves, it will lead us off the path that leads us to to God. We want to be in control. We want to be comfortable. And we don't want to be overlooked. And we need Jesus. And only the grace of Christ can bring us that heart like a child. This morning, the big idea that I want to put before you is simply this. To enter Christ's kingdom, you must surrender every aspect of your life to Christ. To enter Christ's kingdom, you must surrender every aspect of your life to Christ. And some of you be like, oh, I've heard this story before. I've done this I pray that you, the Lord would give us new eyes and new ears to see this story afresh. Because as we read through, your good enough is not enough. Your good enough is not enough, and your idols will never save you. Your good enough is not enough, and your idols will never save you. Because to enter Christ's kingdom, you must surrender every aspect of your life to Christ. And that's difficult. And that's hard. And I pray that we will realize how painful it is, how unable we are to do it on our own. And we will cry out, like the song we just said Lord, have mercy on us. Notice verse 16, uh, 17 Your good enough is not enough. As he was sitting there, Jesus. Uh, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you were to write a job description of the ideal disciple of Jesus, I believe this man would be it. He, Mark tells us that he was uh, a rich man. We see in verse 22, he had great possessions and he was wealthy. Matthew tells us that this man is young. He may be charismatic, a handsome young man who's rich and he, uh, he's, he's uh, a good man. And then we see Luke reveals his possible influence uh, that uh, as a ruler in the area, Luke eighteen eighteen tells us this man was a ruler. So this is where uh, your Bible probably says the story of the rich young ruler, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, uh, bring every different aspects of this man and bring them together. And I would imagine if w- this man would have followed Jesus, he would have quickly rose to prominence above among Jesus's ragtag group of misfit disciples. But more than his wealth and his charisma and his influence was his eagerness, was his earnestness. He didn't just stroll by or Jesus didn't just happen across him. He pursued Jesus. He ran up to Jesus. He knelt before Jesus, the sign of reverence, and he inquired of Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? I don't know about you, but in my life, I haven't had a lot of people walk up to me on the street and say, "By the way, can you share the gospel with me so I may be saved?" Uh, happened to Philip, and it—you uh, it, it, know—it happened to Jesus. It doesn't happen to me every time, but we can see immediately with this rich young ruler, he is an earnest man who does not simply think about what's going on on the vertical in this world, but he also has his sights set on the eternal. And this is really, as we think about it, I want you to think back in the last 10 chapters of Mark, where have we seen anyone like him? When Jesus came around the demons, what did they do? They begged him and they shrieked at him to go away. The religious leaders came to Jesus and were cold and aloof towards him because Jesus didn't pander to their power. And the disciples themselves had to be called away from their nets and their tax booth. Jesus had to find them. Uh, but this man, this rich young ruler, earnestly sought Jesus and he inquired about spiritual things, about the law of God, about eternal life. You could substitute salvation. What must I do to be saved, eternal life? How can I be a genuine follower? How can I have my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? Finally, as we reading through the book of Mark, we're like, somebody gets it. The disciples are constantly saying silly things and um, stupid things, and Jesus is constantly like, Peter, stop. Uh, And and, and we're going to see in a few verses it's going to happen again. Finally, somebody is asking the essential question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But notice how Jesus answers. Jesus doesn't answer his question. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. What? what? What kind of answer is this? This is not the answer that anyone expected, but it is something that the man and you and I need to hear. Only God is good. Now, just as a note here, Jesus is not saying that he is not God but he is emphasizing using the man's own language to give him the answer to the question he is not answer asking he, it, God is the only one that's good. And you may be thinking, yeah, duh, everyone knows that. But Jesus now turned by saying only God is good, is he's raising the man's focus from himself and from the, the horizontal level. He's raising his focus heavenward to think only God is good he is the only source of all that is good and holy and righteous only God is good and we need to remember that why because this man and often we ourselves ask the question why do bad things happen to good people what does Jesus say only God is good question may be, why do good things happen to bad people? This man sincerely thinks he is good, and he comes to Jesus and wants to ensure with Jesus, this great teacher, this profound miracle worker, this man who is, they've never seen anything like it before, he wants to make sure that his life will pay off with eternal life in the end, Not by what God has done, by what Christ has done, but how? By what he has done. And therefore, Jesus gives the man the answer before he answers his question. Only God is good. And then Jesus continues. He goes to answer his question and guides him towards this truth. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. From my bar mitzvah to today, I have been faithful to do these things. Jesus, in his answer, affirms the goodness of God's commandments. And this man affirms his faithful record of those commandments. Now, you may think at first, and you think, man, this man is being hypocritical and arrogant to believe that he could do something like that. But to be honest, he was probably a very faithful Jew. He would have been what the uh, Jews would have called an Aleph to Tav Jew. In other words, a Jew who had followed the letter of the law from A to Z. This man valued life. He loved his wife. He earned everything he possessed. He told the truth. He was honest in in business. He was a good son. He was a nice guy. When they'd say, hey, that rich young ruler, uh, man, people would say, he is a nice guy. He's a good guy to be around. But the problem with this good guy is he was lost in his goodness. His niceness uh, shielded him from recognizing his need uh, because of his sin and the holiness and and righteousness that only comes from God. Because why? Why? only god is good ocean park i believe that all throughout the country and all throughout the world today there are churches that are full of people that are lost in their goodness they're nice guys and nice gals they're good employees and good friends and good neighbors and good citizens they don't cheat on their taxes they don't cheat on their spouses and they don't um, cheat on their employers they make wonderful neighbors and friends and co-workers they're really really nice people just like this rich young ruler But the problem is their goodness and their niceness is toxic to their soul. And it's slowly poisoning their soul one good, nice deed at a time. Our culture... Uh, in a 2005 book, I think it was the University of North Carolina, um, has uh, are said that our culture, not just Christianity, but most religions, have fallen for the lie that if I am a good, nice, and fair person, God will bless me. And when I die, if I'm good, fair, and nice, I'm going to go to heaven. This lie, this false doctrine that uh, Satan uses mightily in our country is a lie, and it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. You can search that in Google, moralistic therapeutic deism, and there's like five pillars of it, and there's all this stuff. But it, it is not the gospel, and it's leading nice people to hell. Because moralistic therapeutic deism is, has no room and no need for Jesus. But look how Jesus responds to this man who genuinely thinks he's a nice guy, he's a good guy, believes, I've done good enough. I'm not like my crazy uncle Sal who gets into the booze at Thanksgiving and talks crazy. I'm not like the people down the street. I'm not like my co-worker who keeps cheating. Uh, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice lady. I, I, you know, You know, I'm better than them. I mean, I'm no Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, but I'm a nice guy. Rather than eviscerating him like Christian Twitter eviscerates uh, people, look what Jesus did in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loves the rich young ruler too much. To allow him to remain in the ignorance of his goodness that was destroying his soul. This is the only place in Mark where Mark ever describes Jesus as loving someone. Jesus doesn't scold him for his response, he doesn't berate him. What do you think? You think you're good? You moron? Don't you know the commandments? He doesn't sneer at his ignorance. Jesus loved him enough. He loved him. But he didn't love him so much that he didn't spare his feelings or avoided offending him. Instead, Jesus lovingly and gently um, challenges his claim of goodness with a radical demand. The very claim, as we'll see, the heart of that claim which Jesus calls us to as well. Because Jesus loved him, he would show him that his goodness was nothing more than idolatry. And his goodness was not enough. Because to enter Christ's kingdom, you must surrender every aspect of your life to Christ, knowing and realizing with eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit that our good is not enough. Are good enough is not enough. But then Jesus continues and, and exposes and shows this man his heart problem, his heart problem of control and idolatry, and he realizes that your idols will never save you. Good idols and bad idols. If good idols really exist, I think they're all bad, but good things made into bad idols. Good things that are made ultimate things that become worthless things. Notice in verse 21... And Jesus said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. This man who is wealthy, he's rich. He's young. He's made good choices. He's good with his money. He clearly is a moral person that to be able to say that and the people around him aren't like, dude, you're not moral. You're not good. Uh, You haven't kept the commandments. But he had credibility on a worldly scale. But Jesus lays this demand of sell your things and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. Invest in eternal life. Invest in the kingdom uh, and and, and give away your things. And how this man would respond to the claims of Jesus, this radical demand of Jesus, would reveal his heart. If this man loves the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind, the first summation of the law, the greatest commandment, if he does, what will he do? He will loosen his grip on his possessions rather than being like Ebenezer Scrooge and you have to peel his fingers over his cold, dead body to get any coins out, this man will open up his hands and give because he loves the Lord and he trusts what the Lord is doing. Therefore, he can open, let go of these idols and possessions because he loves the Lord with all his heart and he trusts the Lord with all his heart. He can hold his blessings in an open hand. And if... The second greatest commandment, Jesus says, to love your neighbor as, as self. If he truly loves his neighbor as himself, which he says he does, which he thinks he does, because I've done all those things since my youth. If he really loved his neighbor as himself, he will take the blessings that the Lord has given him in his plenty and give it to his neighbor who is poor and generously give it to his need until those needs are fulfilled. If the rich young ruler wants to embrace this childlike way of discipleship, to enter the kingdom like a child, the antithesis of who he is, this rich young ruler, he has power, he has influence, he has charisma, he has um, wealth. If he becomes like a child who is helpless, vulnerable, and needy, he would have to loosen the grip on the thing that he trusted most. And it wasn't God, it was his wealth. Notice verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I can't think of very many verses that are so heavy than that that phrase. A man who was so close to the kingdom. The kingdom was in his midst, telling him, and he wanted to get into the kingdom. And Jesus said, This is what you need to do. But the man couldn't see it. The man couldn't see it because he was trusting in his question is, What can I do? As we'll see next week, the answer is there's nothing that we can do to get into the kingdom because it's not what we do. It's what Christ has done. The fine print for following Jesus was simply too much. He could not give up the comfort uh, that his possessions provided in order to follow Jesus. The ask was way too much. I like how Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible translates this. For those of you who know about the Message, it's just real, it's a contemporary translation in a very um, natural w- way to speak. And here it says, The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear from Jesus. And he walked away with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. I love that translation because it really gets to the heart and the weightiness and the problem of the man. At the end of the day, rather than following Jesus and getting the eternal life that he sought, which is only found in Jesus and through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, he opted to trust his own own goodness, his own good enough. Am I good enough? I've done a lot. And he was able to list out his credentials. Remember what Jesus said, only God is good. Only God is good enough. Our good enough is not enough, and our idols will never save us. The cost of following Jesus was too high, and the cost of eternal life was simply not worth the struggle of poverty and need and worry about when, how I will provide. And this interaction really revealed a heart problem. The man's religion was very comfortable and he was in control of his life. He didn't need anyone and anything. He had it all. That's why he asked, what must I do? What must I do to inherit internal life? He didn't need a savior like our song says. He didn't need a savior, and he didn't want, all he wanted is someone to endorse his efforts and to assure him of eternal life. In essence, he wanted a celestial notary to authenticate his credentials so he could get into the gates of the kingdom. What he got was a loving king who demanded everything and his allegiance in everything. Everything. And that was way too much to ask for a man who was a really nice guy. The rich young ruler had a heart problem. And his heart problem was idolatry. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to remain powerful. He didn't want to be vulnerable. So he gave his idol what he wanted so he could be in control. He gave his idol was his possessions, so he fueled his possessions so he could feel like he was in control. I don't have any needs because I'm in control. But when covid strikes and the stock market tanks and your health goes out the window, you don't know what to do and you can't be around the ones that you love, it changes your perspective about what your things and your stuff are good are really worthwhile. When you're in the eye of the hurricane and you have to flee and you have a little car, your possessions are pointless. It's your the what really matters. In those times, it's a reckoning where Uh, It calibrates our hearts. Jesus demanded that he surrender control of everything to follow Jesus and to surrender control of everything to the King, our loving King Jesus, who was good, is to become like a child, humble, vulnerable, and weak. Only when men and women did this they would learn to trust the Lord. And he just simply couldn't do it. Why couldn't he do it? Because he didn't trust the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind. And he really didn't love his neighbor as himself. He trusted his own ability and his own effort. A child who owns nothing and controls nothing, is able to flourish in the kingdom of God because he knows that his father loves him and will give him what he needs. Like our children. Our children know that their mommy and daddy love them and they'll give them food and clothing and diapers and toys and love, so they never worry about that. All they do is ask mommy, daddy, more please. A child doesn't need to worry about the mortgage or buying groceries or keeping the lights on. Why? Because mommy and daddy love me. They have all of that under control, so I can, I can be faithful and I can trust my parents. The rich young ruler didn't love, um, the rich young ruler loved, didn't love his stuff. He loved his control over his stuff. He is a grown man who knows exactly what it takes to pay the mortgage, put food on the table, keep a household running, have a successful business, how to take care of himself, and he couldn't imagine giving that control over to somebody else, getting rid of all his credentials and everything he had, including a good teacher like Jesus. I don't care how good a teacher he was or how many miracles he did, I need my stuff for me to feel like I'm in control. And it's our previous sermons in verse 15 that he failed the requirements. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And the rich young ruler could not let go of control, and he could not enter the kingdom. David Garland, one of the commentators that uh, I came across about the heart of a child. It says, children have little concept of the value of money. Adults, however, do because they know how hard money is to come by and all the things that you can acquire. Adults easily fall prey to mammon and money and become deceived into thinking that they go ahead, Anna, for me, uh, can find life in wealth and possessions. Remember, his desire is eternal life. They think they can, we can find satisfaction and purpose and goodness in life, in wealth and possessions. We get more stuff, what do we call it? I'm living the good life, right? My best life. Many find it hard to give up even a small amount of something so valued, let alone give up all they have, even for the hope of eternal life. The man liked the idea of eternal life, but when the rubber hit the road and the cost of following Jesus was just not worth it. The idol of this man was his money because money can give you what he wanted. He desperately clung to something that he could never keep, forfeiting something that he could never lose, the freedom and the security of eternal life that comes only from Christ. He simply could not recognize the childlike trust in Christ was infinitely more valuable than the fleeting controls and blessings of this world. So he walked away from his only hope in life and death, Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, I I think I was watching something with Crosby, Crosby went to bed and I stumbled on Netflix to the TV show Hoarders. And if anybody's watched Hoarders, it's pretty horrific. Um, and I'd seen a few episodes years back, but I was like, mm, let me see. Let me feel good about our, how clean our house is. And, um, but Hoarders, for those of you that don't know, is about people who are living in really horrific, unlivable um, conditions and how uh, professional, professional cleaners and psychologists and their family want to rally around them and help them with their problem to get out of this And I think this man and woman were living uh, in a house that had bags of garbage and soiled clothing and miscellaneous broken junk, literally, and I don't say that figuratively, I mean literally, piled to the ceiling, and they had to crawl over the garbage to go from room to room. They couldn't get onto their beds, they had to sleep in a hollow of the garbage. Their their kitchen had for years been so full of garbage, they had to go cook their food on a George Foreman grill in a dirty bathroom. It was absolutely horrific and I couldn't take my eyes off it. And despite their children's pleading and their tears and their heartbreaking, and the city threatening to condemn their home and take their home from them, they were unwilling to part with their literal garbage because they couldn't imagine living without it. Now you might say, "Yes, these people have uh, of of uh, psychological and mental issues." Yes, I will give you that. But I believe it's a beautiful metaphor, and I use beautiful in a wonderful way to show us and lovingly show us the truth that the things of this world are poisoning us, and wealth and our possessions in a place like Jack's Beach in Pontevedra are toxic to our soul. Because hoarding shows us, repulses us, but at the same time, it deceives us. We feel good about the cleanliness of our home while we fail to realize that we are no different to the hoarders who are clinging to their literal trash and we are clinging to our worldly trash. Things that for a season might have been good but are now worthless because they're contaminating our bodies and our soul. We cling to things like our homes and our cars and our clothing and our money and our electronics and our stuff. And when those things get old or they get broken or they get boring or they don't have the features that we want, we cast them aside recognizing they can't make us happy, and then rather than turning to Christ, the only source of life, what do we do? We turn to the next best thing, the newest addition, the next update, the car with the leather trimmed in the interior and the satellite radio. We peruse and spend our time on Etsy and Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook, not happy with our lives, but we see these things that we think will make us happy, and we follow those things because those are the idols of our heart. We want to be in control, and we want to be happy, but it's not just stuff. It's other things, like relationships, like power, like privilege. I... When the source of eternal life, Jesus Christ, is saying, let go of that stuff, of that trash, of that stuff that cannot give you satisfaction and give you life, and follow me and trust me, it's worth it. Invest in the treasures of the kingdom of God, which cannot be taken from you. Every six months, I'm good for the quote from C.S. Lewis, his mud pies quote, This morning as I was thinking through this, this quote kept repeating in my mind. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I texted a conversation with someone this week. Sometimes I wonder if my church members even care about following Jesus. We are half-hearted creatures. Fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Verse 22 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible because the rich young ruler missed out on a holiday at the sea because mud pies were too valuable for him. Ocean Park, this morning I asked you, what are your mud pies? What are those things that you're clinging to? What are the, that you're clinging to rather than following Christ? Mud pies aren't just dollar store trinkets and bags of garbage, but they're the luxuries of the rich and the famous. Fame, relationship, image, control, more followers, more likes, popularity, comfort, credential, your dreams, your pleasures, your freedom, your education, your health. It can be wrapped in political ideologies um, uh, or social values or religious morality. Anything that whispers in your ear and your heart and tells you you are not valuable if you don't have Fill in the blank. That's your idol. Your idol occupies the highest place of your heart where only Christ has a claim. And it's whether it's a good thing, like your family and your friends, or a bad thing, if that thing were removed from your life today, would your life be worth living anymore? Ocean Park, what would you do, be unwilling to lay aside if Jesus asked you to? Whatever that is, whatever we don't want to admit that to be, that is our idol. But what do we do? What do we do when we recognize we're an idol? Do we stick our fingers in our ear and try not to pay attention to it? Well, the answer is easy, but it's not. It's impossible. We need the spirit of Jesus, and we're going to see that. But I'm going to give you a little teaser for next week. Mark chapter 1:17, the the key verse of the book of Mark says, "The kingdom of hand, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel." We're called when we recognize our idols, and we recognize our heart problems, to so repent and believe. It's the gospel. What we call, brothers and sisters, we call the loss to do is repent and believe. Re- recognize your idol and renounce your allegiance to it. Verses 43 through 45, this radical commitment to follow Jesus in a radical trust, trusting in His goodness and His provision. If your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it out. If your foot, uh, if your, um, foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. It's rather to go into eternal life without a hand, without a foot, and without eyes than to be able to miss out like the rich young ruler on the eternal life that he was on the cusp of the open door. Repentance is renouncing your allegiance to anyone or anything other than Jesus. Your good enough is not good enough, and your stuff will never save you. Recognize it and repent of it. But it's not enough to just simply say, this stuff is no good, it's not going to save you, but I love it. I'm going to wallow in my trash, literally, or figuratively, depending on if you're, you're on hoarders or not. Oh, that's not, um, that's not right, Anna. Go back to a blank one. We're called to repent and we're called to believe. Trust the goodness of God's grace and declare your allegiance to Jesus we see that eternal life is granted not on the basis of our worthiness, because only God is good, only God is worthy of eternal life, but he gives eternal life of all who follow Jesus and are united to Jesus by faith. It's not enough to simply say, well, I believe Jesus, and I believe Jesus died, but belief is, I know that I'm not enough, and that Jesus is enough, And I trust him with all my heart and soul and mind, and all the chips are on the table. I'm holding nothing back. Jesus is my hope in life and death. We need to do this because we are idolaters by nature. Yet the mercy in God doesn't give us what we deserve, but he gives us Jesus. If salvation is entirely by grace, and it is, and it's based solely on the goodness of Christ, we can trust him. And we can say, I believe the promise of the gospel that says all who are united to the cross, who are the, the foot of the cross, are able to enter into the kingdom, not by what they have done, but what Jesus did. And because of that, they're able to live a new life and enjoy things like they've never before. It's like a Good parent who assures his child that removing the training wheels on their bike will be safe and it will bring them great joy. And they can't believe that because I need the training wheels. I need my stuff. I can't imagine what riding a bike will is because it looks terrible and horrific to fall, but the safety is in the training wheels. We believe our parents because they love us and they want what's best for us and they want us to have joy. And we believe them, and we pedal fast, even when we can't fathom how removing the training wheels that are holding the bike up could bring, be safe and bring us joy. But let me tell you, this is not a one-time thing that you do one time when we play Just As I Am and you walk the aisle, or you have this uh, catharsis in your thinking. This is not just done one time. This is done every day of our life. We're called to repent and leave because the default mode of the heart is to go back to what we can do and the idols of our heart and Satan whispers in our ear. We're called to uh, re- uh, repent of the old habits and rekindle, we rekindle the old love, but we repent of those and we trust Jesus every day uh, of our lives. Because Jesus, and we trust that Jesus is enough. And if we believe Jesus is enough, we discipline our bodies to be able to bring our hearts and our souls into alignment with Jesus. Why don't we read every day God's word? Why don't we pray? Why don't we think that church is important? Because our heart needs to be brought into alignment The idols of pleasure and sleep and, and whatever it may be, pull us away, and we have to discipline our bodies and feed ourselves daily with the Word of God that we may bring our hearts and our minds in alignment and, and calibrate them to the kingdom of God by repenting and believing every day. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And we can do that by the grace that God gives. Generously. Ocean Park, only when we can begin to experience the fullness of joy that is found in the kingdom of God can we realize and enter into Christ's kingdom and surrender every aspect of our life to to Christ, recognizing that our good enough is not enough and our idols will never save us. Andrew Peterson closes his song, Family Man, with the recognition that his immature quest for freedom Though fun, driving a Mustang in a fast car is a lot of fun and it's thrilling, it can never compare to the love that he has in the day-in and day-out commitment to his family. And it's something that he wouldn't go back for. It's a treasure worth fighting for. He writes these words. He says, so let the thunderclouds come. Let the cold wind rail against us. Let the rain come down. We can build a roof above us with the love we found. We can stand our ground. So let the rain come down. Because love binds up what breaks in two. So keep my heart so close to you. I'll find you, fill you up with love, and fill you up with love and help you stand because I'm a family man. The final words are again a reckoning of what he never knew, that eternal, uh, that his family was so much sweeter than his freedom as a kid. And like the kingdom of God, we have no idea the sweetness and the eternal satisfaction that eternal life with Christ gives us so we cling to our worthless junk. He says, I'm saving my vacation time for Disneyland. This is not what I was headed for when I began. This was not my plan. It's so much better. Ocean Park, I pray that we will recognize the treasure that is found in Christ alone and renounce our allegiance to our goodness and the fleeting idols of of this world that we may enter Christ's kingdom by daily surrendering every aspect of our life to Christ. Because our good enough is not enough and our idols are not enough will never save us. Only God is good, and only Christ will save us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for who you are and what you have done. You are a good God. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and we need you. We need you every hour, and we need to be faithful as we taste the sweetness that is found in eternal life that we may have today and for eternity, that we would go and bring the good news to the nations that they may drink of the same fountain of eternal life in Christ, a task that will not be complete until Christ returns or calls us home. In his precious and holy name we pray, amen.